Welcome to the 444th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome disaster law expert Kathleen Bergen back to COVID Calls for a return visit and conversation. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time. This is a special COVID calls at 8 a.m. Eastern time. And these days, as we move towards the 500th of the COVID calls, you can catch them at all hours, day and night. Please just keep up with information on my Twitter feed at US of Disaster. You can watch COVID calls live on the COVID Calls YouTube channel or on Twitter. You can catch COVID Calls recorded anytime as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. Please help spread the word, send suggestions for future guests and topics, and as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. headline is Claudette White, innovative tribal judge, dies at 49. This was published in the New York Times, February 26th, 2021. It was published, it was uh, written by Penelope Green. Claudette White was eight when she read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, Dee Brown's searing history of the conquest and massacre of Native Americans in the 19th century. Eyes opened, Claudette refused to participate in her school's celebrations for Columbus Day. Columbus was a bad man, she declared to her third grade teacher, and spent the time confined to the library. That was the beginning of a life of service to her people, her sister Darina White said. Judge White, a member of the Keichan Tribal Council and a former chief judge for the San San Manuel Band of Mission Indians, died on February 6, 2021 at a hospital in Yuma, Arizona. She was 49. The cause was complications of COVID-19, her son Zion White said. Judge White joined the Keichan Council when she was 23. She quickly became a part of the tribe's successful efforts to stop California, Arizona, and the Dakotas from placing a nuclear waste facility on land in the Mojave Desert that the Keichan and other tribes consider sacred. As a tribal judge, she practiced a judicial model known as restorative justice, which aims to heal and rehabilitate offenders and their victims as an alternative to punishment. She knew at first hand the cycle of trauma and abuse that can ravage Native American communities. She grew up on the Keichan Reservation, 45,000 acres bordering Arizona, California, and Baja, California, Mexico. Her father, Derman White, a Vietnam veteran, died of a heroin overdose when she was 24 cousin also suffered from addiction and lost custody of a son who struggled with substance abuse as well and was sentenced to prison when he was 18. Recently, scientists said that indigenous people are born with trauma in their DNA, Judge White said last year in the keynote speech at an event held at the University of Southern California by the Intertribal Education Collaborative, a Native American educational group that works with universities. We are also born with the blood of warriors fighters, healers, and amazing ancestors that survived every effort at termination. Claudette 
Christine White was born in Yuma on July 19, 1971. Her mother, Dolores Brown, was a home health aide. Her father was a paramedic. She received a bachelor's degree in criminal justice in 1995 from Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. She was later courted by the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University in Tempe, which granted her a full scholarship. She earned her law degree in 2005. She served as her tribe's chief judge for more than a decade, after which she spent two years as chief judge for the San Manuel Band of Mission Indians. She was also a circuit court judge serving native communities in Southern California, a board member of the National American Indian Court Judges Association, and a member of California's Tribal Court State Court Forum. Judge White's work and that of Abby Abenanti, chief judge for the Yurok tribe in Northern California, was the subject of tribal justice, a documentary film by Anne Makepeace seen on PPS in 2017. The film followed the stories, agonizing, hopeful, always complicated, of Native Americans who appeared in the two women's courts and showed how the judges blended traditional tribal concepts of justice with contemporary legal practices. After the film's release, Judge White went on the road to promote their methods. As part of President Biden's virtual inauguration celebrations, Judge White led a group of K-Chan performers in a traditional song of creation. In addition to her son and sister Darina, Judge White is survived by six other sisters, Mary Brown, Roxana White, Lori White, Leah Brown, Amber Espino, and Starla Kachura, and three brothers. Joseph Kachura, Kane Pallone, and Patrick A. Brown III. Among her family, Judge White's nickname was the General, and she handed out stars and ranks to relatives. She had a habit of roping her siblings into activism. Her sister Mary Brown recalled, you would think you were going for a visit or a ride, and you'd end up with a picket sign in your hand, she said. Judge White's arms were emblazoned with tattoos. On her right arm, she wore the face of Wonder Woman, rendered as a Native American with feathers in her hair, and traditional tattoos on her face was a representation of herself, Zion White said. She was definitely Wonder Woman to me. The obituary of Claudette White, who died of COVID-19 in February of 2021. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation and it is uh, wonderful to bring Kathy Bergen back to COVID calls. Let me introduce her. Professor Kathy Bergen is a recognized expert in disaster law. She presently teaches at Cornell University Law School. Her research extends to humanitarian aid programs and the catastrophic impact of climate change. She's been crucial in promoting disaster law as an academic discipline. She's also a successful advocate. Her team in Haiti established a binding precedent in a proceeding before the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights that reinforced post-disaster human rights obligations. Her work on mass evacuation shelters after Hurricane Katrina is used across the humanitarian sector as a blueprint for protecting displaced survivors. She's on the steering committee for Project Blueprint, a policy advocacy organization aimed at promoting a progressive U.S. foreign policy. And there's much more to say, but I will stop there. Kathy Bergen, welcome back to COVID Calls. Thanks so much, Scott. It's really terrific to be here. So let's start the way I usually do, just get an update where you're calling from and how the pandemic is playing out there right now. Great, great. So yeah, so I'm calling from Ithaca, New York. And um, 
like many places across the country, uh, our infection rate is trending down. So we are very thankful and relieved for that. Um, we are shifting gears like other places. Um, our mask mandates are falling. Um, a few weeks ago, the governor announced that um, there you know, be no requirement to wearing masks in places of public accommodation. Um, just the other day, we got noticed that kids aren't required to wear masks in school anymore. Um, that's voluntary if they choose to do so. Um, but we're moving uh, into sort of a post-crisis environment. So we'll have to see uh, where that goes. Our community, um, we are one of the communities in the country with, say, one of the highest vaccine rates. Um, a lot of folks were, you know, didn't have a problem wearing masks. Um, you know, there were certainly hardships. Businesses who had to limit occupancy and close down temporarily during the pandemic took a hit. Um, renters took a hit. Um, so those were all sort of big problems. But um, we've been pretty uh, compliant with sort of the, the personal impositions as far as COVID goes. So we'll have to see how things play out over the next couple of weeks now that the mask mandates are falling. You were one of my first guests on COVID calls. I went back and looked. You've been kind enough to appear twice. You came on with Lindsay Wiley. Um, last year, you actually appeared April 22nd, we talked, 2020, that terrible April. And I went back and looked in the numbers at that time. There were 46,079 deaths reported in the United States on that day that we talked. What a journey since then. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a memory, a personal memory of this time, something that really sticks for you, an association that you have of this time? I know it's a hard question for most people to find one, but um, I'd be curious to know what really stands in your memory for this time. So I have chill, Scott, even hearing you ask that question. Um, one of the things that is imprinted in my memory is just the anxiety of those early days with um, not knowing what was going to come exactly, but knowing it was going to be really bad. Yeah. Um, and I remember before, um, you know, before our governor in New York, Governor Cuomo at the time, um, declared a state of emergency and before sort of all the regulations starting, started to be announced. I have um, two boys. Eight, they're eight and 10 now, a couple years younger when this all started. And they go to public school just up the street. And I remember reading all of the reports from, uh, scientists and epidemiologists who were saying if you know here are the here are the projected deaths and here are the projected number of infections and those numbers were terrifying and they kept saying with regard to schools uh if you want to keep covid out of the schools you need to close them before there's even a single infection because once there's a single infection everybody's infected and this was before we had testing before vaccines you know before we even really had a grasp of what was happening and and that was terrifying to me, knowing how hard it is to build political momentum before you're experiencing something. Um, and, and, you know, my stomach was turning. My husband um, works in for Ithaca City Public Schools. He's a district official. We have a lot of friends who are on the school board. Um, we're a pretty tight-knit community. And we were all kind of feeling this collective anxiety, not really understanding whether or not anything was going to be done about it. And I can tell you the day that we got the email that the schools were shutting down, I got on my knees and I cried because our the decision makers in our community were kind of on top of all that science, even though it was new to them. 
And they really did take a risk by saying, we don't have any infections, but we're gonna go where the science leads and we're gonna shut down now. And I really think that was um, that was brave of them. And it, it relieved us of a lot of uh, personal anxiety. At the same time, it created a lot of anxiety for folks who are differently situated, folks yeah. who were working and had kids in daycare and, and couldn't work from home at the time, right? We hadn't transitioned sure. into that um, context yet. So it was sort of, um, in a sense, kind of personal relief, but vicarious anxiety, um, kind of like the Ukraine situation. We're safe in our homes right now, but we're watching this terrible situation mm -hmm. play out for other folks somewhere else. So I think it, it was kind of like those two feelings at the same time, relief, but also heartache. Thank you for sharing that. And and I had I had forgotten one part of that, we, I was living at Princeton at the time, also with two, with two children, and um, but that waiting for that email. But there, it was a text message, and then waiting, and it was it was very much a sort of a day by day sort of thing. I mean, for a little while before they really went into a much longer period of lockdown, and I, I think maybe I have repressed some of that that waiting. And, and I, I want to follow up and ask you about this because it, it, with the benefit of hindsight now, I realize what a, what a gutsy decision that was with everything that's followed and all of the fights that have followed since then. And I wonder if they would do that again. I wonder if, and maybe this is a segue into our discussion, I, I wonder if the courts would allow schools to shut down again. What do you think? Um, so it's an interesting question. So in New York, um, there were kind of two things happening. Um, there was an initial, there were backroom conversations happening. And I don't mean that disparagingly. I just mean that the, the governor's office was in touch with county public health officials who were also in touch with school officials. Um, all the local counties were coordinating. And within that cluster of decision makers, they were creating backup among themselves. I remember the county administrator at the time saying to me, I, I texted him an email with, you know, heart emojis and tears and saying, you know, thank you so much for doing this. I really feel like you saved so many lives, including the lives of my children. And, you know, he kind of chuckled and he said, no problem. That's what I'm here for. And he said, but, you know, we didn't make, we didn't do it on our own. We made sure that we were not going to be the only one shutting down. And they knew at the time that, um, that this directive was also coming, coming from the state, that the governor was going to issue his own directive. And so there was political support for, for everybody reaching that decision at the same time and no one having to take the hit on their own. And that's important. Um, as far as what would happen now, um, it's interesting. So from a teaching perspective, when I started teaching, um, I basically transformed my disaster law course into a course on coronavirus. And at the time, the judicial decisions on questions like this or pandemics generally, there weren't a lot of cases to work with, mm -hmm. but now there are a lot of cases. So it's a completely different ball game. Um, you know, the Supreme Court has really taken a hatchet to the president's authority to act on certain issues related to coronavirus. And we can talk about that, of course. But they haven't done the same with respect to states. 
they refuse to hear challenges to vaccine mandates when the mandate is coming from a state entity, for example. Um, so, which is kind of signaling that they are drawing this distinction between the authority of a state governor or a public health official to issue different rules and regulations as opposed to the president. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a development that those of us who watch the law are really interested in seeing how the court is responding to this. So, you know, what would they do in the face of a state um, mandate to close the schools? Uh, it would it would be a, probably a state court decision, and it would depend on how the statutes in that particular state are written. Mm, that's interesting. I, well, let's since we started with the court, why don't we just pick that up? Because I I was reviewing some of the some of the cases. I want to first ask you about a couple of the high profile ones. Um, this occupational safety and health administration case. Um, I, and I guess there's been oral argument on that case. Now, can can you run back through that one a little bit and help me understand it? Because that one was there was a sort of a big win, I think, and then a defeat for the administration. They they had a win on vaccine mandates for for Medicare and Medicaid recipient entities, but they had a loss with this OSHA case. And I don't I'm not sure I really understand the the theoretical difference between the two. Right, sure, it's hard to understand unless you really get into the nuts and bolts of it. So there were two uh, two directives and two different cases. One dealing with a directive that um, affects um, healthcare workers and mm -hmm. any healthcare entity that participates in the federal medical and uh, Medicare and Medicaid program was required to um, ensure that their workers were vaccinated, and that requirement came from an agency regulation. Um, around the same time, the court was dealing with a vaccine requirement that was issued by OSHA, a workplace regulation. And that requirement was a little bit different. It required all uh, workers to be vaccinated. And if they weren't vaccinated, they could test and wear masks, um, test you know, weekly, I think it was. Uh, but it's the same kind of construct, right? Like there's an agency rule and it required a vaccine. And the question for the court was whether or not the agency in each of those cases had been given sufficient authority by Congress. So what does the governing congressional statute say about the agency's authority to require a vaccine mandate? And there were two different statutes in play. In uh, the case involving healthcare workers, a majority of justices concluded that the federal statute was broad enough and the language was broad enough that it did, in fact, empower the agency to act. And the language of the of the statute says something like, um, you know, the agency can issue regulations to promote health and safety within mm -hmm. um, medical uh, providers. So uh, so the language itself was directly related to health and safety within the context of a hospital community. Mm -hmm. And given that the whole purpose of um, hospitals is to save lives and keep people safe, it made sense in the court's view to read into the congressional language of the statute broad authority to issue a vaccine mandate. And there were dissenting justices in that case. They didn't read the language of the statute that authorized the regulations as broadly as mm -hmm. the justices in the majority. But I think by and large, um, observers found that case less controversial, right? There's something intrinsically related 
um, to the purpose of a healthcare facility and what they do mm-hmm. and the goal of um, you know, keeping people safe and making sure the workers don't transmit the virus. And it was Justice Kagan, an oral argument, who said, basically, it seems to me that your primary goal as a medical uh, healthcare provider is to make sure your patients don't end up dead. She was right. very blunt about it. Um, and so, so that case was less controversial in that regard. The OSHA case is a little bit different. Same legal question. Did Congress authorize the agency to issue a rule requiring a vaccine? But the statute was a little bit different. So here we have a statute that authorizes the agency to promote workplace health and safety. Right. And the court got really hung up on the language of that statute to the extent it applies to the workplace. Hmm. And so they concluded that the scope of the agency's authority with respect to keeping workers healthy reached only to those harms that arise and are contained within the workplace. And the fact that COVID was a problem not only for workers inside a factory, say, but also for you and me in our homes, meant that an agency rule that attempted to regulate coronavirus was overbroad. It affected folks outside of the workplace, right? The nature of the threat didn't contain itself to the workplace. And that was very controversial for the judges because there were there were questions, oral arguments, and, and statements made in the briefs to the effect of, well, you know, we allow uh, the agency to issue regulations to guard against the threat of asbestos. And asbestos is something that isn't contained to a building, right? It, right. it certainly causes problems in the workplace, um, but it exists elsewhere as well. And so, um, so there was a debate with respect to um, why the court was reading the statute so narrowly, given that COVID, yes, it affects people's health outside the workplace, but it also affects people's health inside mm. the workplace. So that was one point of contention. Um, there are a couple of other interesting aspects of that case. And one is this idea of a workaround. So Chief Justice Roberts asked a question at oral argument um, acknowledging that President Biden's objective with respect to coronavirus was universal vaccinations. He wants everybody in the country to be vaccinated. Right. And here is one agency that implemented a vaccine requirement. And for Chief Justice Roberts, there was a disconnect there because the, the president's goal was so much broader than just requiring vaccines in the workplace. And so it seemed like kind of a hodgepodge attempt to find hmm. statutes that authorize agency action, agencies um, you know, issuing vaccine mandates. And that made him very uncomfortable. And, and so that was a point that you know, a number of justices kind of climbed onto. The, it, the alternative, just to, the alternative being somehow a, a national vaccine mandate enforceable in some other by some other mechanism. Yes, which the president does not really have authority to do. No, there's no right. So, so that was really perplexing for me to kind of hear that line of argument go down. And I know other commentators have written about this because, while on the one hand it's true that a government actor can't really. Um, Rely, you know, act on a pretext, right? Like we don't want police officers um, stopping vehicles and saying, I stopped you because you had a broken headlight. 
when in fact they're engaged in racial profiling, right? right? Because the racial profiling itself is unconstitutional. But we do allow uh, agencies to issue rules that apply within the scope of their jurisdiction, even though the administration has a broader goal. So for example, the Biden administration may have a goal of universally uh, prohibiting racial discrimination, right? Hmm. Well, the EEOC is authorized to issue regulations that prohibit racial discrimination in the workplace. And nobody's ever questioned the fact that the EEOC's mandate extends to the workplace, and right. that's okay, even mm. though the administration might want to also prohibit discrimination in housing, education, and healthcare. Mm. So to me, it was it was really this odd um, uh, this odd reading of how um, agencies operate. If Congress authorizes an agency to regulate in a particular area, then really the question is, did the agency operate in that area? Not, was it one small part of a larger objective? So that, that was strange to me that the court relied on that so heavily. Uh, thank you for walking through those. And I guess the um, I want to follow up on that second one. Bigger picture. At, at a lot of times, I think you know the in the news cycle, these kinds of decisions get very quickly thrown into a this is the court shrinking government or this is the court expanding government kind of thing. And um, it's hard to me. It's hard for me to know exactly with that OSHA case. I mean, one way to look at that, I guess, is it fits within a more broadly within a conservative ideology that employers should have more, that you should relieve burdens from employers across the board and do that whenever whenever you have the chance. But this pandemic is such a, I mean, we just haven't faced cases like this in American history very often. So it's hard for me to like generalize to a philosophy of governance out of these cases. Maybe I'm being naive, I don't know. I mean, what, how much do you read into them is my question. Scott, you're really hitting on some points that came up in the cases themselves, both in the briefs and in the oral argument. So, um, you know, from a from a judicial interpretation standpoint, really the question came down to how broadly or narrowly the courts were going to read um, the language of the legislation that empowered the agencies to act. And the court said, the legislation does not expressly say the agency has authority to mandate a vaccine, right? They were looking for clear, mm. discernible language right. that uh, Congress's intent to say, we're going to let the agencies do this. And that's not there. Now, uh, the justices in the majority acknowledged that this was a novel scenario, that we've never seen anything like coronavirus. You know, the, the best analogy goes back to, you know, the early 1900s. Um, and several of them made the point, and they've made this point in a number of coronavirus-related cases, that um, Congress did not include the specific language that would authorize the agency's action. And in fact, the statute goes back decades 
And no agency has ever taken the action similar to the action in question, whether it's an OSHA vaccine mandate. This also came up in um, with respect to the CDC's regulation placing a moratorium on evictions. The court said, well, the statute's never been used to place a moratorium on evictions. So that must mean that Congress understands that this was not part of the authority it was delegating to uh, the agencies. Now, there were justices that took issue with that. Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer really hit this hard, both in, in you know, a number of oral arguments and in their opinions, saying, well, of course, Congress has never authorized this kind of agency action because we've never been dealing with a pandemic like this. Right. So, so the majority was really you know, asking Congress to have specific foresight on how yeah. to deal with situations that it hasn't right. addressed before. Um, so that, that, that is a specific point of contention. Let me stay with that because as a, as a disaster law expert and a, um, a, a person who I think is breaking ground in this field, does that mean, so what do you draw from that? Is that Congress has been short-sighted about disasters more generally and that this should have been thought of and we, maybe we're going to move into a period of legislative reform where we don't get into these kind of binds before, where there'll be more clarity, either either more restrictions easier to implement or fewer restrictions i don't i don't know i mean i guess my question is how hopeful are you that these cases we've just been talking about will actually lead to to changes in the law that will allow the courts to deal with these things better next time around and i'll just hedge for a second and say when it comes to congress having foresight around disaster I'm usually pretty pessimistic, but then again, this is a two-year disaster we're in the middle of, and I'm not, I'm not so cynical to think that lawmakers don't want to repeat these kind of, you know, legal binds that we've they've thrown us in. It's such a big question, right? Um, figuring out where we go now, um, what is Congress capable of, both legally, given its powers um, granted under the Constitution, but also politically, given where we are politically. Yeah. How we expect Congress to get much done. Um, I, I think that's a real problem. Um, so the, the eviction cases are really interesting because it was Congress that initiated the moratorium on evictions. And I have mm. to tell you, I was frankly shocked and awed when Congress issued that rule. Um, it expired after a time. The CDC picked it up and issued their own agency regulation. That expired. Congress picked it up again. So there was some mm -hmm. back and forth where sort of Congress and the CDC, the legislature and the executive agencies were working hand in hand, some tension, obviously, because things were expiring. Um, but they were kind of keeping the ball rolling. Um, but as far as the Supreme Court goes, when that case presented itself to the Supreme Court, you know, the, the court again said, you know, Congress has the authority to make this happen and it chose not to do so. It left it to the CDC. Um, so there was sort of this understanding that Congress, you know, because Congress sat back and let the CDC take the lead on that issue, that that was some kind of evidence of intent that Congress suddenly decided um, that, you know, eviction moratoriums weren't within the purview of a federal agency. Um, so, so it's hard to kind of figure out where the court would go in different scenarios, given the dance that Congress does with the executive agencies. I will say, I think now it's pretty clear that the court is reading congressional statutes so narrowly 
that whatever Congress wants to happen, whatever it wants to empower agencies to be able to do, it should be as clear as possible. Mm. Uh, the difficulty is that you can't envision scenarios, and that's why we use broad language sometimes, right? Sure. A, a statute that says we're going to delegate to the agency authority to issue regulations to protect public health. Well, you know, that's broadly worded because we don't know what's coming. Um, Congress doesn't have the institutional capacity to act very quickly, nor does it have the institutional expertise. That's the whole reason why we have agencies, right? We want medical experts filling the ranks of the agencies so they can make decisions regarding public health. We want occupational experts dealing with workplace issues. So, um, so Congress understands its own limitations. That's why we have an agency system. Um, one of the things I'm watching, it's interesting because, you know, the lesson is Congress's language is too narrow. It does not empower the agencies to issue these vaccine mandates. There's another case that's working itself up through the federal courts where it'll be interesting to see what the court does with the precedent it has so recently created. And that's the Title 42 case dealing with um, expulsions from the border. And I know we've talked about this a couple of times in yeah. our, our prior discussions, but that case is moving along. So, so under Title 42, the CDC issued a regulation essentially expelling folks who are coming across the southern border. It, it applies to Canada, but it's basically being forced in the, on the southern border. And so typically, um, the way immigration laws work is that if you present yourself to the border and you're picked up by Customs and Border Patrol, you have an opportunity to make a case that you qualify for asylum or mm. you shouldn't be turned around because you will be subject to torture in your right. own country. Right. And it doesn't mean that you'll be granted residency in the United States or permission to stay. It just means that you have a right to make that case. And Congress set up that scheme. Congress is fully on board with this scheme, apparently, because it's still the, the law. Um, and, and so you present your case and, you know, you go through the system to figure out whether or not you were lawfully allowed to stay. So when coronavirus started ramping up uh, under the former Trump administration, the CDC issued a rule summarily expelling people at the border and basically mm. denying them the opportunity to make their case. So we... we uh, we detain everybody at the border and we immediately send them back to Mexico or, you know, various countries. There's a complicated system involved to figure out where they go. But the idea is they, they no longer have a right to present their claim to mm -hmm. an immigration officer. And that completely eviscerates the asylum process, right? which is yeah. established under federal statute. And so this has been challenged as agency overreach. And there's a complicated history to how this came to be. Um, there's, you know, at this point, there are a number of health experts who are on record as saying, although the administration purported to be working, uh, trying to advance public health in the face of this pandemic, there's no evidence that that's what was actually going on. We have, especially now, we have the capacity to test people, to isolate people, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And really, this was a political play. There is evidence that Vice President Trump um, put in a call to the CDC and really over, overrode some of the decisions of the health experts. So there's, mm. there's that kind of lurking in the background. Hmm. But to the point about how this might fare in federal courts, it was argued last month uh, in front of the Court of Appeals in D.C., and depending on how that goes, it may be appealed to the Supreme Court. 
Now, the Supreme Court just established all this precedent that Congress doesn't have the authority to grant agencies broad uh, rulemaking power. Right. And if this case comes before the court, one would think they might say Congress didn't uh, authorize the CDC to do something so unprecedented, to use a public health authority to undermine the asylum statutes. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see whether the court finds a way to, you know, the majority of justices finds a way to wiggle out or they kind of, you know, lay in the bed that they made. Um, but we'll have to see what happens. Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking today to disaster law expert Kathy Bergen. Um, let me let me follow up on, um, so we talked about vaccines, we've talked about um, evictions. Um, you were just talking about this border case so much. I, I was remembering one of our previous conversations where we were actually talking, I think I asked you, is it legal for governors to keep somebody from one state crossing state lines to come into your state if they are afraid they have a, the pandemic? I mean, the, the legal terrain of this pandemic is vast. It's, it's, it's unimaginable, actually. And, I, and there's been so much scholarship published. I was just doing a quick look already, lots of volumes of, of legal scholarship, you know, trying to make sense of COVID's impact on the law. On the on the mask side of things, I just I want to get an update on that too. We were talking about masks a little bit before. What can you generalize at all right now about you know who has the right to do what in terms of mask wearing in a pandemic? And and I'll share this with you. I'm here in South Korea, where people wear masks indoors and outdoors. It's not a it's not a matter of conversation. Um, and I have a colleague who kind of, he approached me, he said, I don't think I understand what a, a, a mask moratorium means. You know, he was trying to like get this problem that, that you would actually pass a law that would make it impossible to then enforce a mask mandate. And I couldn't explain it. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. Yeah. I just can't explain it. You know, so... I will, I will answer your question, but it reminds you of something I just read from a colleague um, at Cornell who said, you know, sometimes if like a court or a, an executive agency issues um, a rule that we don't understand and doesn't make sense to us, we look for an alternative rationale. Even if we don't agree with it, we want to kind of figure out how they got from A to B. And he said, sometimes there is no alternative rationale. <laughs> you, <have to laughs> right. you can't figure it out. And, and, and that gave me comfort. Um, but to answer your question, so... You know, from a legal perspective, it comes down to the same question all the time. Um, did the relevant govern governing actor have the authority to issue the rule? And so, um, so it may be that federal agencies have authorities to issue mask mandates that apply to public transportation, right? Planes, trains, et cetera, et cetera. And if there is a statute that authorizes, you know, the executive branch to do that, then, then they can't. Um, Generally, what we refer to as the police power resides in the states, and it would be more common for a state to pass a law, either requiring masks or prohibiting somebody from wearing a mask, and that's what, that's what we've seen. So the question of the legality of those rules comes down to what the state statute says. And in New York, we've sort of um, come full, full circle on that issue because uh, pretty much the day before... New York had its first confirmed case of coronavirus. 
the state legislature expanded the governor's authority to act. Traditionally, under our state statutes, the governor had authority to uh, revise existing regulations and existing statutes. So, you know, if there was a cap on the the amount of overtime a doctor could work, we can suspend that cap if we need to, to face a public health emergency. Well, the tsunami of coronavirus is coming and the legislature got together legitimately overnight and gave the governor additional authority, not only to revise existing statutes, but to create directives. And it's that authority to issue directives that the governor used to shut down schools, to limit capacity in public buildings, to issue mask mandates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Fast forward about a year and a half into this, two years into this, Governor Cuomo becomes a very embattled governor, um, lots of problems with his administration, um, incidents of sexual harassment, yeah. uh, mismanaging um, regulations regarding nursing homes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, within the context of that, the legislature starts to rethink this grant of authority that they just gave him a, about a year and a half ago, and they ended up repealing that. Um, mm-hmm. It's the repeal of that grant of authority that really left the new governor in a hard position because then her mask mandate was challenged in court and the state court said she does not have authority to issue this mandate. That authority was taken away when the legislature clawed back the authority it had originally given to Governor Cuomo. So it all depends on the language of the state statute. So this is so that's New York. So in, in other states, then legislatures have done all manner of, of quite active things, one might say um, radical things like mask, like not just not granting the power, but passing legislation that I think I'm right, that explicitly bans a governor from having that power or having any public health authority in the state. So I guess then they're also trying to preempt some sort of move by mayors or county level officials to in the vacuum of no legislation to, to take that. Have I, am I reading that right? You are reading that absolutely correctly. So I think Texas has done that. I'm not sure if Florida has done that or not. Um, they may have. Yes. So they, the, you know, instituting rules that prohibit the imposition of a mask mandate. And that's why I went in the OSHA case, for example, right? The court says, well, OSHA doesn't have the authority to issue a vaccine requirement or a test and mask alternative. And one of the responses is, well, that's okay. It's not really a, a, a hit to public health because a company, a private company could require you to be vaccinated or mask or test or whatever you want to do. But that's not true in states that prohibit private companies from requiring a vaccine right. or even having their um, their workers wear a mask. So that's really disabling. Let's talk about politics for a second. The midterms are coming, and, and as soon as the midterms are over, the presidential campaign starts, which I can't believe. But um, and so I'm wondering, you know, particularly officials like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, do you anticipate that he might run with some of these issues as part of his stump speech? I mean, something like, if I'm president, I will lead you know, Congress in passing a ban so that CDC can't do to you with it. I mean, I'm wondering if some of this state level stuff, which got played out, as you said, in Texas, road tested in Florida, um, if it helps him, whoever, win the nomination, do you expect to see that kind of thing? I don't know if they could ever get it done, but do you expect to see that kind of rhetoric, actually? 
Sure, sure. Now, I'm not going to purport to be an expert on political campaigns or what the GOP is thinking. I am completely flummoxed at this point. I understand there's some move to try and um, promote some moderates, whatever that means at this time. Um, but obviously, obviously, there are outspoken leaders. DeSantis is one of them who is really just sort of feeding red meat to the masses. I don't know if you saw the video clip the other day of him confronting high school students, telling them to take their masks off. You don't need to wear this ma your mask. This is completely performative. And it was, it was just sort of reviling from a, from a humanitarian standpoint, the way he confronted children who are, you know, many of them are, are skittish about whether or not they should take their masks. I was just horrifying. He doesn't know um, if that kid's parent has cancer. I mean, that, that little clip, well, I'm not going to put anything past the GOP, but I've, just a sidebar, one of the things people say about him is that actually he's good on the stump, but he's not very, that th things like that happen a lot with him behind the scenes. Yeah. But that was, that was horrendous. It was just completely repulsive. Um, so, but, but he does it because it works, right? It has to work with a particular yeah. constituency. And there's all kinds of issues you know, surrounding that, um, Twitter bots and misinformation and all this kind of stuff. Um, but, but I always like to bring it back to the basics. When we're talking about the president, the election of a president, um, the system is completely broken because so long as we have the electoral college, which gives a deciding vote to a numerical minority of individuals, we're going to have situations where somebody like Ron DeSantis, who may get a lot of votes in Florida, but lose so many other people, could end up winning the presidency. We've seen that happen now a few times with Trump, with Bush, et cetera, et cetera. Folks who study this stuff say it's going to become more common because of the way population movements are happening and we are becoming more polarized, more red and blue, less purple. Um, so, so yes, my fear is that we will end up, you know, with somebody like DeSantis, um, even though a majority of voters rejected him. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to disaster law expert, Kathy Bergen today. Um, quick question. I know there's a piece of legislation moving through the Senate. I don't know, maybe moving isn't the right word. It's in the Senate um, to try to set up a national disaster investigation board, basically a standing body. Uh, and it's been introduced and in, I think Katie Porter introduced it in the House and um, uh, Senator Schatz from Hawaii has introduced it. Um, it has some bipartisan support. But one of the key questions about it, of course, always will be, um, you know, it's where you would situate a body like this so that it can actually do the work it would need to do and, and not get in the way of FEMA, not get in the way of local law enforcement, something like that. Um, I don't know if you followed that at all, but just in a general sense, I wonder what you think might be the, the um, possibility for a board like that being created and the pros and cons of it from a legal perspective to have a, a, a body of experts that literally might even have subpoena power in the midst of a disaster to be collecting data and then giving advice, maybe even suggesting legislation coming out of a disaster. I think you know where I stand on this. I mean, I think we'd be in really good shape if we had one. But it's a legal tangle, particularly, I think, you know, we're, considering we, we were just telling me about CDC and Health and Human Services, this could just be one more body that gets tangled up if the legislation is not written in uh, the exact way the Supreme Court wants it to be written. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of a mixed bag. I think I stand with you. Sort of my initial starting point is that the more we understand 
the more we understand disasters and what needs to happen in order to better prepare for them and better respond to them, um, the better. And, uh, you know, when we look back at the way Congress has responded to disasters in terms of oversight, um, you know, there were a number of hearings undertaken after Hurricane Katrina and, you know, hundred page, multiple hundred page reports that came out of those hearings. Uh, even those reports, however, left out um, important information that you have to go elsewhere to kind of create a complete record of what happened during Katrina. But at least it was an effort at, you know, national oversight, which is important. And it led to some significant reforms. Um, Hurricane Maria, for example, we didn't have that, right? We had a couple of committee investigations, but we didn't have this like, you know, full commitment from Congress to say something went dramatically wrong. We should be ashamed. People died unnecessarily. They're still feeling the effects of it and we need to fix this. So in that regard, having a standing oversight mechanism in some form makes sense because we remove the political question of which disasters matter and which disasters we're just going to fluff off. Yeah. Um, I do agree with you, however, that um, the details need to be worked out because there are experts in the field. Um, there are folks who work for FEMA who know about disasters more than you know maybe you and I even know. Um, although you know FEMA is obviously flawed in ways that you know we kind of can we yeah, talk about. Right. Okay. Um, but but there are experts whose expertise we should sure. draw on, and we need to acknowledge there are things we don't know, and we need to defer to those folks. So so I think I stand with you, and that yes, I think an, an initiative like that is worth uh, forwarding. Let's think about how we implement it and what the details will look like. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to to ask you now, I, I don't think we're out of the pandemic. I mean, I think we're in a new phase of it, but um, what have, what has surprised you the most as a person who's followed disaster law now through some of the most devastating disasters in the United States and abroad in these last two decades? Um, what has surprised you most about the way that the law has been used, misused, ad adapted? You know, coming out of this period, these two years, when you go up in front of a class, what's the what's the first thing that you tell them about COVID and the law? Uh, the first thing I tell my class is that I understand you are in trauma, um, and and I understand that you are experiencing this in a in a particularly personal way, whether it's because you yourself have been affected or your family has been affected or watching this as a member of the global community. And mm -hmm. I think it's important to acknowledge that. Yeah. And I said, I also understand that you're sort of um, swimming with blinders on because my students don't understand what it means when the World Health Organization issues a public health emergency declaration and what that means for the United States or how much influence the United States has over this. And they don't they don't understand where these laws and rules are coming from. And and so things are happening around them that affect them intimately. And and they're just kind of in awe of it because they're trying to get through law school like prior to the pandemic. That was a yeah. and of itself. It's a whole right. new way of thinking. So so I acknowledge that. And it's not unlike the experience of disasters in other contexts. I know this is a little segue from, from your question, but um, when I was in, in Texas during Hurricane Katrina and we went to the Astrodome um, when busloads of folks from New Orleans were coming to Houston, they right. were being evacuated. 
And I, I probably told you this story before. I remember this man getting off the bus and we had, we had brought food and water and orange juice. We were trying to anticipate what people would need if they've been on a bus for days or, you know, yeah. who knows what's happened to them. Um, and they were getting off the bus and we were just handing out orange juice and water and what have you. And this man tapped me on the shoulder and he said, he said, I'm just coming from New Orleans. Do you think I'll be able to get back by the weekend? I really want to get back to my home. And I looked him in the eyes and I lied to him and I said, yes, I'm sure you're going to get back in just a couple of days. And it dawned on me that he had no idea what had happened to his entire city. And I knew that because I was safe in Houston and I was watching the news 24 seven. And so he was having this intimate experience that changed his life. And he didn't even understand the sort of the greater implications of that at that moment. And I feel like that's what my students are living through now. And it's mm -hmm. going to really take years for them to process uh, what happened to them and how they survived it. That's a great answer. I mean, that's a powerful answer. And, um, and I, you know, and I think about, um, and whenever I have medical experts on, I ask them kind of like how they think is changing medical education and, um, I've gotten similar answers to what you said, although you you said it really well, which is actually one of the things we're learning a lot is just about the need for empathy and giving people time to cope with the trauma of trying to build a life in the middle of all of this. Yeah. And the professional stuff will work itself out yep. later. But I'm not sure how I would, you know, if I was in graduate school and had been had my time deferred for two years and and everything else and and that's gone along with this, I don't know how I would have coped with it. I mean, I've had every privilege through this time and it's still been hard. Yep. Yep. I feel the same. Well, um, we're closing in on episode 500. So this probably be the last time we talk in this way on COVID calls, the project will become something else after. And I know we'll get the chance to talk in other contexts, but it's meant a lot to me to have you and your really clear explanations of these super complicated issues. <laughs> Kathy, I just appreciate you so much. And thanks for spending time with me on COVID calls. Thank you so much, Scott. And, and seriously, right back at you. I think about the, the Herculean effort that must have gone into putting this together. And, you know, you may say, I don't know how I would have gotten through grad school, but but you got through this and you created COVID calls and it's such a service to all of us and it, it's going to last for generations to come. So thank you for your effort. That's very kind. Thank you so much. I want everybody to tune in my next COVID calls episode. Actually, um, today we're going to have quite a few COVID calls coming up later in the day. Uh, and the first uh, one later will be at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. I'll be talking to Drexel University President John Fry about leading the university through a pandemic. And let me thank Kathy Bergen once again for joining me today on COVID Calls. Stay healthy, everybody, and we will see you next time.